Locked in. The room is now fully accessible to all wonderful Colin followers out there. Thank you for joining. Um, <clears throat> I, as you can see, I have a guest who I'll have introduce himself momentarily, J.D. Haltigan. Um, but I just wanted to give a little bit of an introductory remark uh, to kind of set the stage for why I was prompted to make this room and why I was just prompted to discuss this topic. I'm sort of a bit, I guess I would say, not exasperated, but begrudgingly intrigued that even now it seems like I have to devote or I'm called to devote a lot of attention to continuously covering this subject of of COVID and like the continued debates and societal issues surrounding it, which, you know, maybe I was a bit too optimistic in thinking that, you know, by, by New Year's Eve 2021 would be a bit of a secondary story. But nonetheless, um, a lot of issues continue to pop up. And I guess what I was prompted by to make this particular room on this particular day was because over the course of the holiday season this year, or, you know, Christmas um, and the preceding maybe week or so, it really was evident that a lot of primarily upper class intelligentsia types, people with some connection to the public health domains, um, People who have crafted a lot of their identity over the past nearly two years uh, on presenting as hyper-cautious or hyper-sensitive to COVID, uh, they went through a fairly dramatic kind of reckoning where they had to decide how they were going to respond to this latest quote-unquote surge in uh, cases caused by the so-called uh, Omicron variant. And uh, there was a whole slew of really tortured public kind of soliloquies from journalists, from so-called public health experts, etc., on how they should manage that with respect to their holiday plans. So, because For example, you had this guy, Ed Young, who is like the all-star COVID reporter for The Atlantic and keeps getting showered with accolades for his really empathic and sensitive uh, renderings of all things COVID. Uh, He posted this long-awaited judgment as to what he would be doing in the wake of Omicron. And it turned out that he, Ed Young... Uh, announced that he was going to sadly ha- have to cancel his big birthday party, which happened to be uh, in mid-December, because he just couldn't rationalize doing it with Omicron. And like Ed Young coming out and saying, look, this is a serious enough threat meeting Omicron that he has to cancel this birthday party that was going to be his first big gathering uh, since COVID began, that sent shockwaves throughout this particular class of people for whom he was sort of like a tribute, you know? 
Um, so that made people see people who are connected to this kind of school of thought that made them go into a tailspin. And so uh, over the course of, you know, uh, Christmas and the kind of preceding few days, I made a point to go on social media and kind of look, spend some time looking through the, at least the social media feeds of a lot of these sorts of people. And by sorts of people, I mean, people were oriented toward this Ed Young view of COVID mitigation, where it's just a constant fixation in their lives. They must always be devising strategies to mitigate what they regard as risk, um, who are always kind of lobbying for interventions uh, by the government or other bureaucratic authorities to keep them safe or keep their immunocompromised slash vulnerable, you know, associates safe. Uh, and you look at some of the measures that they, these people took uh, in terms of what they reported on, on social media, and sometimes it ranged from the comical to the sad. Um, so, for example, there was one woman who I came across who uh, had a daughter of hers, it was a teenage daughter, and I believe this was actually in Indiana, her teenage daughter was allowed to come out of her isolation bedroom briefly on Christmas morning to open presents sitting behind a plant. And if you don't believe me, I, I screenshot it on Christmas Day. Um, and this woman says, my daughter quarantining while opening Christmas presents. And she has a photo of the daughter. Let her sit outside her room, then right back in. And it's the daughter sitting opening presents behind a giant potted plant. I mean, uh, don't ask me the epidemiological rationale behind that, but... Um, that those are the lengths to which some people went, and you had just countless examples uh, like this. With that being one of the more outlandish, I guess, but still, the, clearly there was clearly we're in the midst of a gigantic surge in uh, paranoia and um, inopportune uh, risk assessment, right? Um, which is also exemplified by this giant surge in tests that are being carried out all over the place. Now, I'm not saying that in every instance, seeking out a COVID test is inherently irrational. I think there are some scenarios where maybe it does make sense, assuming the accuracy of the test, which again is sort of an open question. Uh, but anyway, you know, I don't, I wouldn't summarily discount the utility of those in every circumstance. But to go look around and see Lines and lines of people in these major cities. I mean, I've seen it myself in New York City. Snaking around corners of, of uh, people waiting on the street in the cold and the dark for these tests. And it turns out that seemingly the vast, vast majority of them are not actually sick, but nonetheless are testing themselves for reasons that were recommended to them by the kind of bureaucratic structures around COVID that have been erected. Um, we seem to have entered into this kind of feedback loop where the people who are kind of incessantly invested in COVID as a system of thought are the ones carrying on the kind of psychological aspect of it uh, in terms of uh, on a mass scale. And then the people who have no interest anymore in following anything related to COVID just ignore the entire thing. Right, so it's a strange bifurcation, um, but it, I think it does warrant our attention because uh, 
in that bifurcated kind of segment that are hyper-focused on COVID still are a lot of very influential people in different domains, public health, journalism, media, uh, entertainment, etc. Um, these people comprise big segments of the technocracy, right? Um, so unfortunately, or uh, at least, or unfortunately, if you're not too thrilled about that, um, their sentiments kind of are influential uh, in dictating outcomes for society. Um, so I think that also then calls for maybe a bit of a deeper uh, psychological assessment of what's driving a lot of this. And um, that's where I think the piece by JD, which is on Substack, which I recommend people read, um, comes in because he, I'll have him explain in his own words, but he gets into, you know, some of the underpinnings of these, these kind of seemingly uh, never ending psychological maladies that are afflicting these upper crust segments of, of, of the kind of elite classes. Um, And uh, I also want to, put an emphasis on this whole issue of long COVID because I think we're entering into a phase now where new criteria is being cited for why restrictions are necessary or why continued moralizing against others is, is permitted. Um, and, that, and what people are t- tend to be increasingly saying, if you kind of read the, their social media, is that, you know, forget about vaccine efficacy, forget about anything to do with the standards for kind of evaluating the status of COVID that we had used up till now. At this point, they say, we must be hyper-mindful of the risk of long, quote-unquote, long COVID uh, afflicting everybody uh, and potentially causing kind of lifelong ailments. Um, And the kind of prognosis of long COVID is pretty poorly defined. Um, some of the uh, study uh, of long COVID is highly dubious. Um, I wouldn't just dismiss wholesale that there are people who maybe had a infection and have suffered from kind of post-viral symptoms, if that's the right phrase. Um, but clearly, there is a very loud contingent of people who occupy positions of influence who are now demanding that long COVID be kind of recognized as just a repository of their generalized anxiety and angst. And they're just kind of using the specter of COVID to make it seem legitimate. I mean, that's basically my um, baseline takeaway from a lot of this long COVID uh, frenzy at this time. Again, I'm open to more information. And again, I don't doubt fully that there are some people who may have genuine symptoms, um, but clearly it's beyond, uh, it, it, it's, it's entered into a paradigm that's well beyond just any kind of empirically substantiated uh, diagnosis of people undergoing a certain health issue. Um, and uh, you, you even see, like Washington D- in Washington, D.C., um, when the mayor, Muriel Bowser, uh, last week, or uh, was it 10 days ago, issued a renewed statement of emergency or declared a renewed state of emergency in Washington, D.C. One of the uh, justifications cited for that declaration of emergency, which if you listen to my previous episode, I get into all the kind of ominous civil liberties implications of this permanent emergency state. Uh, But one of the 
justification cited for this declaration of emergency was the specter of long COVID, um, which is almost like unfalsifiable uh, given its its vagaries and ambiguity. And um, that's all, all the more reason for people with questionable um, psychological conditions to kind of latch onto it, I would, th- I would think, and uh, kind of demand accommodations on the basis of their supposed classification as long COVID sufferer. Um, so anyway, that's my, uh, my introduction. And uh, JD, do you want to jump in? Yeah, thanks, Mike, for the introduction. That was a, a great introduction. And, and I just want to um, note, you know, broadly for the room, my, my interest in this kind of peaked um, with the new Omicron variant and sort of the immediate panic-driven response of the media that, that kind of immediately was unleashed before we knew anything about really the variant and what have you. And I had been thinking for a while about writing the piece just more generally based on some of the media, you know, mainstream media, the, the preferred narrative the whole time has been sort of induced fear, panic, uh, you know, at least if not explicitly, that's what they're doing implicitly. And, and just by way of introduction myself, my background is in developmental psychology. That's what my PhD is in. And then I did a lot of focused work in what's called uh, developmental psychopathology, which for the listeners is basically just a fancy way of saying you know, I study the symptoms of mental mental health issues, mental illness. Um, so psychopathology broadly defined is just thinking about the symptoms of anxiety or any real, you know, common clinical disorder that, that listeners are probably familiar with. And I do a lot of, you know, modeling of those symptoms to try to better understand, you know, how they, they co-vary with one another and what have you. Um, and the other thing that, that kind of was happening at the same time for me is I'm, I'm working on some unrelated work that deals with the two models that I discussed in, in my Substack piece, the one of which I'll talk a little bit about here, which is the diathesis of stress model. And so, you know, I was working in parallel on a meta-analysis with my students and, and you know, I'm thinking about these models and then I'm thinking about how this applies to the pandemic and, and just seeing the incessant um, you know, fear-driven stuff going on. And, and, and you know, you posted a, a clip uh, just the other night of NBC News leading off, and it was just, you, you can't well, not watch that and come away with the mentality that, that that's what's happening. It's sort of fear-first rationality. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the dramatic music and it's the, the reporting of case numbers and the little snippets of unidentified experts declaring that there is some kind of crisis upon us. You know, it's the same formula that could have easily been used in, uh, and was used in March of 2020, but with mountains of additional evidence that would countervail the more alarmist uh, narrative. But at least in certain, you know, mainstream media organs, this is, it's the same, the tenor of the coverage is virtually the same. Yeah, and, and I think just to kind of encapsulate uh, for the listeners right quick, the two models in my Substack piece. So I think it's important to lay out a few little uh, notes that are that are more, I guess, what you could say, research-based scholarship, but just for the listeners. So two things. One is, you know, the lay, the lay public is, com- is accustomed to thinking about mental issues and mental illness categorically. So we think someone is depressed or not, and they, they receive treatment. Or someone is, um, you know, for example, they're diagnosed with, let's say, common clinical disorder like, 
you know, anxiety disorder or OCD or what other com- whatever common clinical disorder, you know, that, that might be the case. But in reality, we know from, from modeling and work in what's called taxometrics, which is a statistical procedure for determining whether relationships among symptoms, for example, rep- represent, you know, an actual type, a categorical type, like a a disease entity, a disease entity, or they're more norm, normally distributed in the population. So for most common clinical disorders, the balance of the evidence is that we, we all have a little bit of anxiety or depression. We all kind of vary over time in, in our, you know, in the baseline level at which we carry sort of those symptoms um, and our thresholds for experiencing those symptoms. And that's typically thought of to be mostly to, to largely biologically determine, you know, sort of genetically set trait levels of these, of these particular symptoms like anxiety or feeling sad or, or, you know, particularly vigilant about something. So when you think about mental illness and sort of experiencing these symptoms of psychopathology in the population, it would make sense then that you have a a social stressor like the pandemic, which mostly, unless you're, you know, extreme delusional, it's, it's a real virus that presents some risk to the population and you have to mitigate that risk. But what it has done is it has sort of distilled, especially with the media amplification of it, it has distilled those different thresholds that everyone experiences to you know, feel these, these emotions. Um, and for example, in psychopathology research, we know, for example, that, you know, even take a a very specific demographic variable, like biological sex, we know that, you know, rates of depression are higher among females in, in adolescents, men typically are more aggressive. They present with more externalizing problems. So these are basic level, robust findings in the psychopathology literature. Um, and then you then you move to something like um, political ideology, which is a little bit more murky or, you know, where do people fall left, right in terms of their their feelings and their emotional states and their their sort of susceptibility to emotional ability. And, and there is some evidence. And I sh- and I link it in the Substack piece that, you know, folks on the left uh, tend to be more vigilant. They tend to. Um, you know, endorse more anxiety symptomatology. Uh, in some cases, there was one study I linked to uh, clinical symptoms of anxiety disorders as predictors of political attitudes. So there's some evidence to suggest that you might su- see that a little bit more coming from folks who tend to fall further, further left on the ideological spectrum. And where that in my opinion, where that becomes a problem is that when you have people setting policy who are, who may, you know, who may be predisposed to, to, to have a a lower threshold for these feelings and who may not be as capable, at least in the moment of, of rationally balancing risk versus, you know, mitigating or, or proportionately balancing uh, social measures to to effectively contain the pandemic versus just going in all all out with incredible um, fear responses that get you know turned over and and transmuted into policy that is 
overly restrictive, that becomes problematic at a societal level. Um, and so the, the model that I basically lay out in the Substack piece, which comes from evolutionary biology a little bit, and, and more, more specifically, early work in, in depression research, which is the diathesis stress model, is that we're living through a time where the media and social media has amplified people's tendencies to have these thresholds to experience these symptoms. And, and we're, we're dealing with a, a political institution and, and, and sort of governing institutions that are, that are enforcing policy based on that, which is, which is not a healthy situation to be in when we well know that the, the virus is going to be endemic at some point. Zero COVID is, is, is delusional, especially in the United States. And we, we also have plausible reason to think that lockdown, social isolation, especially in children, is, is going to have potentially harmful effects later on down the road for social communication and so forth. So that's kind of what I lay out in the piece. And what I'm trying to convey to the, to the public in a more academic way is that you know, everybody has these symptoms in the population and this social stressor of the pandemic has vis-a-vis media exaggeration really amped up individual differences in how people experience these symptoms. And then you have policy that's driven based on that and, and that becomes really problematic. I mean, we're seeing this now in colleges that are shutting down. You've you've chronicled this all over. Your yeah, yeah. Just a just a quick point on that because obviously, I agree that media amplification, in particular, it's kind of the perverse incentives of social media amplification, are a major uh, component of this. Uh, however, I'm not sure I would assign quite as clear cut kind of causality. To it, because what are the these media amplifiers reporting on much of the time? Well, they're reporting on, for example, this antiquated metric of case counts, for one thing, that are collected and promulgated by these public public health bureaucracies uh, that apparently nobody has to, nobody feels compelled to skeptically scrutinize much at all. Um, and if, because if you do, uh, then you're considered some kind of right-wing anti-vaxxer or something, and that's anathema, obviously, within much of the media. Um, but it, it's not like the, it's the media itself which is just kind of inventing these numbers that is the kind of the source material of their paranoid amplifications, right? I mean, the, it's coming from the bureaucracies themselves, and you mentioned the college situation, you know, people will sometimes uh, denigrate me for seeming to spend too much time focusing on the COVID policies of colleges, but I've always said that I've done so because it's a harbinger of what is to come elsewhere in society. And so if you have these major Ivy League universities or elite universities, which even this coming semester, so beginning in January, are kind of reverting to this quasi-lockdown scenario maybe not as fully intrusive as it was in 2020, but still, you know, enough of an impediment to normal life that it kind of suffuses everybody's daily experiences. Um, where, you know, for example, in at Princeton, they're saying in a, there, there was an instruction given for people to stay uh, in their rooms until they get adequate like uh, testing protocols set up. 
or um, that they're not allowed to host or partake in any kind of gathering that involves food or drink, which is like obviously a huge part of being on a college campus, right? You get together and drink or whatever, right? I mean, that's that's banned. So that's a prohibition on just a standard social activity that these triple vaxxed, because now they are also mandating boosters, college students are not allowed to engage in. Um, and, and on and on and on with this sort of thing. And... He, it's not the media that's doing that at Princeton University, for example, right? It's these bureaucracies that have been set up that are comprised of people of a certain kind of psychological orientation, seemingly. Because, you know, not to just t- take a cheap shot, but when I saw the, the Princeton announcement, um, I, I looked at who the dean of college is who's promulgating these rules about uh, Princeton COVID policy, and it struck me that, you know, it's not the type of individual that necessarily you'd want to be taking direction from in terms of, like, your own behavioral regulation. It's an individual who puts in her profile that she was the director of Princeton's Program in Gender and Sexuality Studies from 2019, 2009 to 2015, and became dean of college in July 2015, and now she's issuing regulations with the veneer of, like, a scientific authority. Well, and, and, so there, like, and so there's, a, there's like, another, and just to fi- finish the thought, so there's, like, a bureaucratic structure that is making it so that a person like that is in a position, I know she's probably not doing it totally unilaterally, right? There's always these advisory committees that are ad hoc that these, these universities set up, but she's the head of this structure, right? And therefore is endowed with the ability to make these promulgations, and um, it, it's because she's within the bureaucratic structure that 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 she has this, uh, I think, ill-gained authority. Um, and so, like when you talk about media, yeah, obviously the media is it can be a, is a huge problem with all this stuff. But I think you know, in terms of the causal mechanisms at play, it's a lot deeper than that. Yeah, no, I, I want to just clarify. I think the media amplifies, but you pointed out a few good things here that I want to touch on right quick. And, and your your point about the Princeton uh, individual, if you look even further back, UT Austin, she was performing arts. Um, I mean, and, and so it was, I think in her, in the clip or the image you you posted, it was like a performance. There was a, a note there in her, her previous gig that it, it was performance based. And I had to kind of, you know, I again, I don't want to take cheap shots either, but you, you know, who's setting the policy decisions needs to be really clearly laid out. And yeah, just so, just so people are aware, I mean, this woman, her name is Jill Dolan. Again, I'm not trying to single her out. I just happened to see this um, prior to arriving at Princeton in 2008. She headed at uh, the University of Texas in Austin the um, Department of Theater and Dance um, in, perf- in in performance as a public practice. Whatever that that means exactly. (laughs) And and your point about the institutions is one I wanted to touch on as well. So, you know, I've I've maintained this for a while that we have one of the things that's happening culturally, not just with the pandemic, but in institutions, the professional managerial class, we have what I consider what I label as sort of an asymmetry between trait empathization and trait systemization. And that's just sort of some mumbo jumbo to basically means we, we have an overabundance of basically what I would think of as, as more feeling-based individuals in these institutions. So when you think about the construct, the psychometric construct of 
uh, masculinity, femininity, and you, you kind of, you know, we can set aside the, the more academic debate about, you know, the constructs themselves and how they're measured. But the point is, is that the people in the institutions that are setting these policies tend to have personality types that, that are comprised of some of those more empathetic um, traits that track with uh, femininity and and you can look at even like Fauci and and Collins they 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 shouted down um, you know the the professors at Stanford they would not engage them they won't engage their critics and so you have this situation this asymmetry where any discussion of of you know COVID not potentially being this this existential risk that people are pointing out, even though it's very real and that it does affect certain risk groups, um, you're labeled as someone who's like, you know, you don't care or, or you're just heartless. And that's not healthy for setting policy that, that is going to get us out of this in a way that, that is functional. Um, and, and this not, you know, again, when I say, when you're thinking about causal, what's causing this, I, you know, Obviously, we're 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 looking at this from a broader perspective. We're not mechanistically investigating sort of you know a pre-post or or some experimental paradigm. But um, when you look at the trends and and you see what's what's tracking with wit with what in terms of constructs, personality, symptomatology that we would associate readily in, in the lay public with common clinical you know disorders. You, you, you can't not make these observations and wonder how they're influencing society and how we're moving forward. Um, and so in trying to unpack this, you know, I'm really looking to more mechanistic models of individual differences and then how, how are they expressed in these institutions? So, you know, we, we don't have, you know, in, in, the, in the institutions that are setting some of these policies, and, and including the CDC, Walensky, and others, you, you see the same personality type traits that are that are there. And, and, and once you have too much empathy and too much concern, it becomes not empathy anymore. It becomes, you know, you're you know, you essentially risk weaponizing empathy and, and really paralyzing a population that can't that can't move on, not only in terms of mental health, but in terms of, of really getting the virus under control and let it let it let it you know, running its course into, you know, in an in, in endemic state. Um, well, well, now I, I see more and more people, you know, and again, I don't want to necessarily exaggerate the contingent of people who are making this claim, but, you know, you see huge amounts of social media engagement, which I know is a f- flawed metric, okay? But huge amounts of social media engagement among sort of se- somewhat influential segments of society uh, where more and more you're seeing the claim that just acknowledging that this, the virus is going to run its course, right, or that it's going to probably infect everyone over the course of a lifetime in, in its endemicity, endem, endemic state. Sorry if I can't pronounce that correctly. Um, uh, even just acknowledging that plain fact, they claim, is tantamount to eugenics, or some kind of genocidal impulse, because what it's doing is basically sacrificing, again, this is their formulation, you know, sacrificing the, quote, immunocompromised and uh, the vulnerable, and they're claiming that's the same impulse as eugenics because you're weeding out kind of the more 
vulnerable or less equipped individuals in a, in a population. Um, so that's like kind of the blackmail, emotional blackmail tactic that seems to be perpetually invoked. And, and I think a, a big factor that's kind of undergirding the deployment of that tactic is this whole concept of long COVID. And I'd like you to address this specifically, JD, because there's a the segment, there's a section in your post about this. But I've been looking more and more into um, long COVID just because I, it seems, again, like it's going to be the basis on which people continue to make demands for behavioral restrictions or for uh, imposing different constraints on social activity and uh, policy accommodations, et cetera, uh, notwithstanding the vaccine, because they're saying that pe- the people are susceptible to long COVID even if they contract the, just by dint of contracting the virus at all, right? Because they're saying that, and I'm generalizing when I say they, but to the extent that people are worked up and advocating on behalf of long COVID patients, um, they're saying that even an asymptomatic or very mild case of COVID um, is thought to potentially manifest as quote unquote long COVID dumb line and it has all kinds of neurological and physical uh, ramifications. Um, and just looking at this, the, how, how long COVID became a thing, <laughs> to use the modern parlance, um, my attention was brought uh, earlier today to an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal from March of this year by Jeremy Devine, which is sort of interesting. I don't know that I necessarily would endorse every aspect of it, but he does trace... Um, the concept of long COVID to what it's described as a highly unorthodox origin, which were online surveys um, produced by this group called Body Politic, um, which itself describes as, quote, a queer feminist wellness collective merging the personal and political. Um, and in uh, March of 2020, the group's co founders created a support group for COVID. And their aim was to, quote, cultivate patient-led research. And from that emerged these um, anecdotes about people suffering what they regarded to be long COVID-type symptoms. And then it kind of mer- uh, kind of transmogrified into a diagnosis uh, that eventually um, ended up getting you know, acknowledged to some extent by the federal government, which is funding uh, research into this cluster of symptoms uh, that is regarded by many as long COVID. And again, I wouldn't deny offhand um, that post-viral symptoms may exist in certain people who've had the virus, right? I mean, that would be ridiculous. Um, But if you're talking about, you know, this kind of merger of certain personality types that are maybe more prone to stressors and more prone to exaggeration of risk... Uh, with uh, the contracting of a virus, and then they use that as a basis on which to demand policy accommodation for themselves. You know, it's hard not to notice the kinds of people who seemingly are the ones who are most adamant about making sure that long COVID is acknowledged um, and that, you know, society kind of reorders itself to accommodate such people. So uh, what, what do you think about that particular element of this, J.D.? Yeah, so I, I touch on long COVID as you mentioned, you know, in my piece, and and we 
first thing I want to make clear is that, you know, to to talk about long COVID or to question what it really is, is not denying the reality that some people say they are suffering or to not deny the claim that that individuals are suffering symptoms that that are real. Um, but when you investigate and empirically scrutinize long COVID, there's there's lots of issues that you need to sort out to really understand it and unpack it. And the first is, is, is are the symptoms a, a result of COVID or are they pre-existing vulnerabilities to experience something that are persisting or exacerbated by COVID? Those are very different, you know, conditions. And so long COVID is basically... You know, it's a quasi-medical term right now that refers to persisting symptoms, and there, there's many of them. I've, I've looked at some of the uh, comments in the in the literature, the, the medical literature on long COVID. The, the, there's some preprints that have been out, um, and, and there's a lot of, in terms of, you know, empirical work that's been done on long COVID. There's a lot of issues. So, control groups: Are you controlling for pre-existing levels, the baseline levels of experiencing these symptoms? And I think it's plausible that in a, in, a, in a few cases that long COVID, you know, may be a real thing, but we we don't have we don't have definitive evidence of that quite yet. But what we do have is is like you just kind of chronicled there, uh, groups who are highlighting symptoms or, you know, pointing to these symptoms, and and kind of creating this mystique around long COVID that might be used later, you know, might be used now or in the future to maintain this perpetual sort of uh, chronic fear state, this chronic panic state of we got to do something about COVID. And the reality of it is, is whether or not long COVID is the pre-existing, you know, is the amplification of these pre-existing thresholds or something actually biologically real as a consequence of getting COVID, showing a, a, a PCR with a positive, you know, COVID case, and then sort of teasing apart in methodology whether or not the symptoms that are following that are, are real. We have a long way to go before we, we, we end up with long COVID as something that's empirically robust and is something that's very real for a wide or, you know, even a non-negligible segment of the of the population or subclass. Um, but yeah, and just and, and just 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 on that point very quickly, you know, I don't know that this Wall Street Journal column is the whole story. And maybe people can give criticisms of it if they were to read it as maybe omitting certain aspects of how long COVID came to be this widely understood uh, diagnosis. But according to the narrative that is laid out in, in this uh, column, um, long COVID derived from these kind of like self-reported online surveys, right, that were run by this group that identifies as a feminist wellness, queer feminist wellness collective. And um, hey, only, exactly. oh, sorry, what? No, I was just going to say that's one of the, the self-report nature of, of a lot of the long COVID research is one of the weaknesses. That, and, and it's interesting that the piece mentions that. Yeah, but, but also on top, on top of that, it says that of, you know, they, they put out they did an initial survey in March of 2020, but then a second larger survey in, two, in December of 2020. And of the 3,762 respondents, 
a mere 600 or 15.9% had tested positive for the virus at any time, right? So they're saying that because the U.S. response had been so lackluster throughout 2020 in that there was not enough testing capacity or tests were not adequately available, um, that means you can't use testing positive or not for the virus itself as a basis on which to assume that somebody had long co- has long COVID, right? So it's almost like there's no um, standard of proof that one really has to reach to kind of substantiate having long COVID because if they got it, in, if they're claiming they got it uh, sometime in 2020 when there was inadequate testing capacity, then they can't travel back in time and take a test, right? Um, so, I mean, that kind of gives additional ammunition to people who want to kind of create kind of a self, uh, self-guided self narrative for themselves uh, where they they had long COVID and that's the, they have, or they had COVID at one point and now it's long COVID and that explains whatever ailments now they feel that they're afflicted with. Um, and it kind of, again, it just kind of underscores the ambiguity around this and um, in turn, the ambiguity inherent in using it as a basis to make policy, which, as I mentioned before, is already being done, at least in the case of Washington, D.C., if you read the executive order that was issued a week or so ago declaring a new state of emergency. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, this is something to bear in mind. Yeah, and, and I think, again, I, I want to go back to the point that, that most, you know, long COVID in terms of, you know, before testing was readily available and some of the ambiguity around this this quasi-medical syndrome that, that is sort of being documented is that, again, we, we think of common clinical disorders in, in terms of categories. But to me, a really good investigation of long COVID would be saying, okay, someone has tested positive. Uh, do we have pre-existing measures of their mental health symptomatology prior to the pandemic? And can we control for that? And then can we show that, you know, subsequent to a diagnosis or struggling with COVID that they have, you know, more elevated long COVID symptoms prior to whatever baseline level they were, they were experiencing. Um, so I, I agree with you. And, and part of my interest in your work as a journalist has, has really, you know, I'm sitting here and sort of in academia doing a lot of the work on this and research on this and in my area of interest. And I'm seeing policy being driven by sort of, you know, in, in irrational, emotionally driven professional managerial institutional class that that is not not healthy and whether it's lockdowns whether it's masking children um whether it's and and the other thing that we haven't even mentioned is that some some of these individuals who have pre-existing thresholds that are low for experiencing you know anxiety symptomatology these these are people that are really suffering and the media is not making it any easier for them to navigate an ambiguous time. And so I, I see the media is complicit in a lot of this just by virtue of the fact that they're driving this fear. And, I, I, you know, I, I don't it's obviously politically tinged, obviously. But but, you know, media has always been about you know getting clicks, but it's it's not helping a segment of the population who may be like, wait, wait a minute, you know, I'm fearful of this. Um, but I'm also recognizing that maybe it's too much. And so having honest discussion where you're not shut down because you want to focus on the elderly and 
you know, high risk groups, the obese and others with, let's say, vaccination encouragement or uptake and then, you know, letting letting the virus play out to some degree and, and younger populations that are able to you know handle the virus more naturally and, and without, you know, large scale mortality or morbidity and being shut down, like in those emails we saw from Collins and Fauci, you know, uh, that that to me is just unhealthy and not helpful at all. Well, you know, a pro- I guess a problem with that is, yeah, ideally at this stage, you'd think there would be more of a res- receptivity to a focused or targeted protection strategy, which some scientists had advocated from the beginning, like the, you know, the great Barrington Declaration people, whatever you think about some of the premises of that statement, assuming people are aware of it, which basically argued for a targeted mitigation strategy um, for the elderly or the vulnerable, uh, but generally did not advocate or actually advocated against um, subjecting younger populations to any kind of strict interventions uh, that, you know, interrupted their ability to live freely or, you know, they were adamantly against school closures uh, from the outset and and that sort of thing. Um, You'd think that we would be able to enter that stage uh, now, given at least the purported uh, relative mildness of this Omicron, which I call the Okamon variant. Um, and and so forth. But I guess uh, the complication there is that given these personality predilections that you seem to document, J.D., and given how prevalent they are, particularly within younger groups now, I mean, you, you, you see so many people, and again, I guess social media potentially is runs the risk of clouding one's, one's perception of how widespread this is. Uh, but at least if you look at social media, it seems like it's a very fashionable thing for younger people to identify as in some sense, quote, immunocompromised. I mean, I never I never would have thought – I mean, pr- pr- prior to COVID, to me, immunocompromised just as a layperson seemed to mean, you know, somebody who was going through chemotherapy or had a heart transplant or something, you know, truly medically serious. And uh, maybe some of these people who are – brandishing this label of immunocompromised who are like 25 genuinely do have compromised immune systems. But, you know, what is the criteria by which we determine whether they're genuinely immunocompromised? And if you question it, are you like harming them, right? Um, so how do you even evaluate who really is the at-risk population of any, anymore if um, this this label is so widely available for people to kind of uh, affix to themselves? Uh, that's sort of a, another complication uh, also, you know, from a policy perspective, which is gen- what I tend to focus on journalistically, because I'm not an epidemiologist, I can't get into the weeds with any level of claimed expertise um, on that aspect of things. But on a policy level, you know, I can read the documents and I can listen to what the politicians are saying and, and such. And uh, the the solution that's being put forth now um, by a lot of uh, by partic- particularly Democratic politicians, but also Republicans. I mean, you even saw uh, the Republican governor of Arkansas say this on uh, a call with Biden yesterday, which is that we need more tests. You know, the the solution apparently to avoid the more harsh uh, punitive measures or the kind of the, the MPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions, like school closures or bans on gatherings and such is to just get everybody testing constantly all the time in perpetuity. 
and then we can really contain the virus. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, does do people really think that the flood of testing that's gone on since Omicron came out to the scene, with, again, people snaking around uh, street corners, lining up for tests in these cities, and, you know, uh, rushing out to the pharmacies to uh, see if they can get their hands on one of these rapid at-home tests, um, and, you know, just t- testing themselves constantly, and if they're said to be positive, even if they're totally asymptomatic, or they basically have a mild cold, that they're then told they have to isolate for um, 10 days. I mean, now the CDC has recommended five instead, uh, but even five days of isolation, you know, that's a pretty big inconvenience for a lot of people, and it could also be, you know, mentally deleterious. Um, so, you know, but I guess basically, if that's the policy response at this point, you know, just get more tests out there, you know, enrich these testing companies, which are having a total bonanza uh, in their production of such tests, um, you know, invoke the Defense Production Act forevermore to get millions and millions of tests out there uh, for uh, the indefinite future. I don't know, I think that could also contribute to the exacerbation of some of these personality disorders or these um, personality dispositions that lead to uh, an exaggerated perception of what the risk is. Because so, in so many cases, you see people saying, oh my God, I've tested positive. And that is the harm unto itself, more so than any symptoms that they personally feel, which most much of the time, at least of late, are um, non-existent. Uh, but because of the bureaucratization and the, 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 the kind of compulsive compilation of these biometric uh, data and this idea that everybody has to be enjoined to be constant, constantly testing themselves and putting that information into databases which are then promulgated by these public health bureaucracies, um, that seems to be like a recipe for a continuation of a lot of these tendencies that we're identifying and which would the media then amplifies. Um, so that, that to me is cause for pessimism. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And that kind of touches on, I know some of the listeners probably have heard of the mass formation idea of, of Matthias Desmond, who's, who's kind of talked about some of this, but, um, you, you have, and you also touched on earlier, the immunocompromised, you know, individuals on social media that, that sort of claim that identity and, and we're in. I think more broadly, a larger, it's, it's true that we're in a very politicized time, a very socially sort of uh, atomistic time. And so identity formation and, and everyone choosing an identity and label, labeling themselves something is, is preponderant. And then you have the testing now that has been, you know, kind of, you know, laid out testing of asymptomatic people, um, testing, testing, testing. And your point is a, is a very good point. JD. And it just it, it it's not a good situation at all. And I think it, it also impacts, let's say you have a lower threshold and you're already struggling with sort of more of a, a baseline, you know, difficulty and being more emotionally balanced. And, and you know, you're struggling with that or, or you're really trying to cope with that. And then you have, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of getting this message that you have to test asymptomatically and then one pops back positive and it freaks, you know, it really makes you uncomfortable. It, you know, even if, even if you're not really at risk, it can, it can, you know, it can really hamper your ability to effectively fight whatever 
situation, you know, whatever virus you, you may or may not have. Um, and so we're constantly driving this fear state amongst, you know, many individuals who, who might may already have a lower threshold for, for experiencing fear. And that, to me, comes back to sort of some of the in, inhumane aspects of this at a population level, um, not to mention a policy level. And, and I guess where I get a little bit, I don't want to say tinfoil haddish, but you, you have to wonder at some point, why are they continuing to create this, this sort of cultural ecosystem that, that, that is pushing this stuff? Um, and you mentioned sort of the testing people that are making a bonanza. And, you know, again, I don't want to get tinfoily, but it, you, you can't, you, you, any reasonable person would start to connect the dots and say, what's, what's going on? Well, yeah. And, you know, if anybody uh, listening wants to call in, you know, raise your hand, but just, uh, you know, I guess to wrap up, it's definitely not tinfoil hatty to identify that even if you just look at the SAC filings of these test producers like Abbott Laboratories, you know, they say that they view uh, rapid testing, for example, in the case of Abbott, as the, quote, sustainable uh, aspect of their business plan as regards COVID. Um, so, you know, and these, these are entities that have lobbyists and, and so on. And I, I, again, I don't think, I guess to clarify, I don't think they need to have a lobbying offensive really to get politicians to endorse the concept of rapid testing or a perpetual endless testing. I think that's kind of been a notion that's been uh, cultivated with or without any kind of ingrained financial investment. Um, but <clears throat> clearly, there are people who stand to profit enormously from this new way uh, way of living that's been set up. And you had a guy who I pointed out a few days ago um, was quoted in the Washington Post, uh, his name is Bob Coaster, uh, as recommending that for the next several years, every American, this was his recommendation, every American should test themselves daily. And, like, wh- who do you think is paying for that? I mean, who do you think... It's producing the tests that are going to satisfy this guy's recommendation. The for-profit corporations, right? And um, I don't think it's tinfoil hatty to to critically assess that and kind of theorize what kind of distorting impacts that's, that profit motive might have. Um, but anyway, um, uh, J.D., uh, this was a good uh, conversation and... and uh, if you have any concluding thoughts, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I want to just thank you, Mike, for the for the opportunity to kind of discuss this with you from sort of a two pronged approach to sort of the the psychology versus the policy angle. And and I also, you know, when I say tinfoil hat, what I meant there is is that there are some you know fringe folks who who don't believe the virus is real and what have you. But um, I'm always careful in my speech, given the climate we're existing in today, to kind of um, you know. The, the most minor thing that people who are contrarian say regarding COVID vaccines, um, anything that's coming from, from the authorities, you're, you're liable to get, you know, run out of town in a way that is totally illiberal. Um, that's sort of where the, the nature of that uh, comment came from. But I agree. I think, I think the, the profiting that is coming off of some of this stuff has to be considered as well as the motivations of some of these governors and and folks in positions of institutional authority to kind of continue with this constant fear-driven 
uh, narrative that that necessitates overly restrictive uh, policy, uh, whether that's passports, lockdowns, uh, limitations, and, and so forth. Yeah, and you know the passport, the vaccine passport issue is one that I talked about on the previous call and episode, and I've also done um, Substack posts on it. It just seems like that's the perfect policy manifestation of this theory or that you're kind of laying out here about the psychological underpinnings of a lot of these neuroses, because clearly what's being done in the form of these vaccine passport policies is uh, an attempt by government officials to assuage the fears and anxieties of their constituents more so than actually curtailing the virus itself, because there's virtually zero evidence at all that any of these vaccine passport schemes, whether it's in the U.S. where New York City has had them since September or in Europe where Germany's had them for months and yet both places are undergoing a major surge in, in virus. So it clearly seems to have no impact at all on actually stemming the spread of the virus, which is the stated goal. Um, but it perhaps does have the effect of providing some kind of psychic mollification to certain um, citizens and, you know, if that's the basis for policymaking, well, then uh, I think that needs to be challenged journalistically and otherwise. And that really does not seem to be happening, happening with any kind of adequacy to my mind. But um, anyway, J.D., yeah, thank you for uh, joining me. I, again, I uh, encourage people to read that uh, Substack post and uh, hopefully we'll keep the conversation going. All right. uh, Take care, everybody. Take care, everybody.